John, as you read the Word of God, we do so in two short passages in the New Testament. First of all, in Paul's letter to Colossians and in chapter 3, and we're going to read from verse 12 into the first verse of chapter 4. Colossians 3, at verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your your husbands as fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And then we turn to First Peter and chapter number 2 and at verse number 18. First Peter 2 at verse number 18. And we'll read down to verse number 23. <clears throat> Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did revile in return, and when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Amen. This is God's word, and we trust that he blessed to us these readings from it. We we'll turn to praise God again from Psalm number 35 in, this, in the same Psalms on page number 43. Psalm 35 and we're singing at verse 25. Let them not think within their hearts 
at last just what we want. Now let them say we've swallowed him. Let that not be their taunt. Down to the end of the psalm to God's praise. Turn back now to 1 Peter and chapter 2, and we can read at verse 18. 1 Peter 2 at verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Down to verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And today I want to return to our ongoing study of this first letter of Peter uh, and we remind ourselves that uh, Peter has written this letter to help Christians in the world uh, to remain faithful to their God because they live in a hostile world. And we saw the different ways in which he has brought us to this stage, the ways in which he has explained to them the purpose of God, the way in which he has set their experience in the plan of God as the God who is their saviour, the way in which he has reminded them that there is a certain kind of behaviour required of them because of who God has made them and through all of these processes drawing to their attention the importance of being like him, being holy, for he is holy. He has called them from darkness to light, and so they are to live in a way that reflects that. And we saw in chapter 2 the way in which he speaks at the beginning of that chapter, down to verse 10, of the way in which Christians should behave themselves in the church, another very important aspect of what it means to be the children of God in the world. And then we moved on from... uh, verse 13 of this chapter to look at the way in which 
that the gospel should impact upon our lives in the world and the way we should testify to that gospel in all our relationships, whether they are in our home or, or in our family or in our workplace or in our community, the importance of showing that we are the children of God. And that, of course, is, is key to the effectiveness of the church. We can see who we are, but it's, it's showing that what we say is true. That's what makes an impact. And they were being encouraged to remember that because in the situation in which they found themselves, they were close at times to, to forgetting who they were and to falling away from faithfulness to God. And so we come to, to verse number 18 where we saw at verse 13 that we are to be submissive to the ruling authorities, to our governments. And here we want to see that Peter has something to say about the Christian in the workplace. And in all of our lives we spend time doing things, we spend time working, we spend time sharing life's experience with others. What is required of us in all of these areas of life, especially of the Christian in the workplace? First of all, I want us to see that Paul draws, uh, Peter draws our attention to a practice. And the practice, once more, brings us to, to think of this idea of subjection, of passing ourselves and giving ourselves, of ranking ourselves in order under someone else who is above us in rank. That's the image that uh, the words present to us, the words that Peter uses. They are very much military terms. And if I'm in the military, I recognize rank and order, and I'm expected to pay respect to that and to find myself in that order and to give obedience. It's submission and subordination. It's to be under authority. And in many ways, it is summed up in simply being obedient. And obedience here is required of servants with regard to their masters. And the picture that Peter uses, it's not the, the slave in the slave market, it's the household servant who is subject to the master, who is lord of the house, who has ultimate and full and complete authority in the house. And the household servant must give absolute obedience to the lord of the household. That's what's required of him. And in many ways, as we see Peter's omission here, in many ways, it's not really so important for the servant how the master behaves. The important thing for the servant is that the servant behaves in the way in which the master requires. And we can take that into our workplace. We can take it into our school life. We can take it into our study life. We can take it into community life. There are structures, there, are, there is an order, and there is behavior that is required of us. And ultimately, no matter who it is that is over us in authority, it does not change your responsibility and mine to give complete obedience to them. And for all of us, we will be faced with these challenges. And in a world which 
is moving, has moved so much to, to place the authority with the individual to make us the most important person in life, it's a real challenge to submit ourselves to the authorities as they are over us. And especially as Christians, that's so important for us as the people of God that we do recognize as much as the Lord is our master himself, that we have masters in the world and that we are due to give obedience and service to them. And Peter, in reminding him of that, he places a limit on it. Thankfully, he does. Be subject to your masters with all respect. And much better it would be Translated, if it went like this, be subject to your masters with all fear. And we see that in verse 17, that's exactly what Peter has already said in general terms with regard to, I fear God. Yes, we are to respect those who, who are over us, who are our masters in their workplace, in their office, in their school, wherever we find ourselves, we respect them. But the key thing here is with all godly fear and so I have two things before me when I'm living my life in my workplace I have the, the rules of, the, of my master at work I'm contracted to, to live my life in a particular way I have the word of God which is the rule of my life as a child of God and as long as the rules of my master at work don't come across and come in conflict with what God requires me to do, then I must give complete obedience to my master, as hard as that may be. And I do so only as far, and as far as it doesn't interfere with my faithfulness to God. And that limitation is there for the child of God, for the Christian, wherever they go in life. But for you and for me today, I should be the best engineer on the site. I should be the best teacher in school. I should be the greatest, greatest example of, of the administrator, the coordinator, the manager. I should be, as a Christian, I should be a role model. I should be the kind of person that everyone else in the workplace will look to and will see this is a person who is committed to, to their contracted employment to their master uh, and they're showing their Christianity in that complete submission, subordination and obedience to their master. And there will be the challenges as there were uh, for, for the household slaves. They were abused. They, they would suffer. But nevertheless, Peter doesn't make their suffering an excuse for them to fail to give obedience to their master. Instead, no matter what, how much they suffer, as we read through the verses, we, don't, we expect to suffer when there's something wrong. There's no credit in that for us. We expect that. But it's suffering when we have done good. We expect that. And, and that, that's part of of what Peter is saying here. There is that practice of submission. And when we are going to live like that as the people of God, as the children of God, 
What is it that motivates us? What are the elements that, that work in life in order to bring us to do that and to enable us every day to submit ourselves? And Peter expands on, on in verse number 19 of, of these elements. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, there's a gracious thing in the sight of God. There are three things here. There are three elements that motivate us. And the first of these is that this is a gracious thing. Gracious thing in the sense that it is of benefit because it's what, it's what God rewards. This is grace. This is a gracious thing. We read of Jesus using, speaking of, of the same kind of context in Luke chapter 6, and he says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that for you? What grace is that to you? Love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Lend and don't expect anything in return. Your reward be great. You, are, you will be the sons of the Most High. It is a gracious thing. It is of benefit. It is something that God will reward. And the very reward he has spoken of in chapter 1, which is the reward that drives the people of God, that he has borne us again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. There is the sense of reward. There is that, that benefit. And that's not a selfish thing. God has promised that he will bless us in the path of obedience. And so on every occasion when I'm challenged to not to give submission to those who are an authority over me, every temptation not to do so, I remind myself of the promise of the blessing of God. That there is always a benefit that there is an enriching and that God will give grace, show grace, show blessing and that the more we are prepared to suffer for him, the more that sense of reward will motivate us and will drive us. The second thing, there is the consciousness of God, mindful of God. The words are the conscience of God. Does God have a conscience? It's the consciousness of God. So when I give my, my obedience to my master in my workplace, I am doing so conscious of the presence of God, conscious of the fact that he is there caring for me and watching over me, conscious of the fact that he will constantly provide for my needs. There is that sense of living for God living with God and living because of God. And it is great to see somebody who has a real tenacity in keeping every rule and, and in living so straightly in that way in the workplace and everywhere else. But sometimes that tenacity can be without the sense of the presence of God and the consciousness of God. 
What Peter is calling for is not that cold tenacity, that observance of cold rules. It's the picture of the person who has the consciousness of God in their hearts and in their minds, who live step by step, day by day, the real sense of God over and God providing and God caring as well as God requiring. The God who expects is the God who enters in and who is always there to provide for our needs. There is the reward, there is the God consciousness and there is that which is pleasing to God. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. The disastrous thing in the life of the child of God is when we lose sight of what happens in the sight of God. And very quickly, we can lose sight of, of the, the watchful eye of God and the examining eye of God. And once we lose sight of that, we then slip into a groove where we are focusing on who we are, what we are doing, and how we can manage what we are doing. And there is always that danger in every area of life, whatever our occupation is, whatever we are studying, whatever we are doing, there is always the danger that as the children of God, we will lose a sense of the need, the responsibility to do everything that is pleasing in the sight of God. And so tomorrow, what is going to motivate you and me to live as God wants us to do? Is it simply that this is what my job requires? Or am I going to, to face my, my work situation and going in there with a sense of God is watching over me, caring for me? A sense of God's presence is with me? A sense of the need to do everything that is pleasing to him? When you have these triple elements in my thinking and in your thinking, when you have that, then changes our whole outlook in our work situation. It gives us motivation. So that my motivation is not the response of my master and how he behaves towards me. That, of course, of course is going to affect me. And if, if I'm going to suffer for, for being the child of God in that context because of who my master is, then I, the, the corrective, the, the motivator is the sense of God being with me, God being present, and my need to do the things that are pleasing to him. And so the practice is that we have that responsibility to do what God requires to be holy in all of our conduct, and at the same time, in the day in which we live, if we have responsibilities, we do not forget the fact that we have rights. And that as the children of God, we have rights in the workplace. And that it is unlawful to do, discriminate against anyone because of rich religion or, or, or belief, or even because of a lack of religion or belief. It is unlawful to discriminate we have rights and responsibilities. And we, we learn to live our lives 
understanding our responsibilities to God, understanding our rights as the people of God, and when we have these things working together in life, we have strength, we have courage, and we are able to face challenges in a way that we are not able to do so when we don't understand the Word of God, when we don't understand our rights. And as soon as we meet with something that brings suffering, then we quit, we crumble, and we turn away, and we can't deal with conflict. We need to understand the practice, the responsibility, and the rights. And we need to be motivated by a sense of the presence of God. The practice. Secondly, Peter gives us a pattern. And he gives us a pattern as those who are Christians. In verse number 21, For to this you have been called. How many are called as Peter's readers were called uh, from darkness into light? When we are called, we are called to grace. We are called to forgiveness. We are called to enjoy the promises of God. We are called to enjoy the glory of the paradise of God afterwards. Being called by God into the fellowship of his Son, believing by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's something attractive, something powerful, something that fills us with, with joy and with expectation. We are on a path of the discovery of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are called by his grace to enjoy his grace and ultimately to enjoy his glory. But here in this case, it is to this you have been called. Called to suffer. It's a strange calling. But when we read the life of Jesus himself, when we read the, the other letters of, of, the, of the Apostle Paul and of John, when we read these letters, we see the way in which being a Christian, being a child of God, is accompanied by suffering. Paul says to the church in Philippi, it was granted to you not only to believe on his name, but also to suffer for him. And that's the same Paul concerning whom Jesus said in Acts chapter 9, and speaking of him, I will teach him but he must suffer for the sake of my name. There is a necessity in the calling that leads to suffering. There is that sense of being persecuted for your faith. There is that sense of following Jesus. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It's a calling into participation in suffering for the gospel. And we, we read in, in, in Matthew's Gospel and the parable of the soil, the way in which the, the soil that was on stony ground, the way in which it, the seed on stony ground, the way in which it, it grew up briefly, and then when the sun shone, it, it, it vanished away. And here were those who, when they suffered persecution for the faith, they, the, the root of the matter was not in them, and they fell away. Suffering is an integral part of following Christ in the world. To this you have been called. 
because Christ also suffered for you. And we know, of course, that that is the gospel, that Christ suffered for us on our behalf, in our place, in order to rescue us. So what does this mean for you and for me? Because Christ also suffered for you. It seems that it is does more to do that he did that for us, so we should do the same for him. For you and for him. He suffered, he endured the cross, he, he went through life in obedience to God. No matter what the cost was, he lived his life faithfully following the path that God had set out for him, giving obedience to the commands of God and delighting to do the will of God. He suffered for you. And so Peter is now saying, Christ did that for you, and you also should now do that for him. Is it too small a price to pay, or too large a price to pay? Is it too much for us to consider in the light of what Christ has suffered for us? To suffer in some small way for him as he calls us to follow him. As he called his disciples in the world. As he says to the disciples, whoever shall lose his life for my sake will find it. It's giving up our lives sacrificially for him no matter the cost. Because of the way in which he gave his life for us at such a great and it is there that Peter brings us to the example leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps and we mentioned to the children the whole idea that, that Peter has here it is the whole idea of, of learning the alphabet through tracing the letters being instructed by a teacher and drawing the lines over the letters that already exist so that the teacher is teaching the child to write through this exercise of tracing the letters as they are on the worksheet. And here we, we have Jesus as the original. He is the template. He is what's on the board already. And I'm called upon to, to come and to live my life and to take, as the child takes the pencil over the letter on, on, on the worksheet, to begin to live my life and to take my life and to follow the line of his life, the path that he took, the steps that he followed, to follow him in close relationship so that the pattern set in his life is the pattern that is now set in my life. And as we mentioned to the children, there is, there is that idea spoken of by John Newton when we're trying to do something for God and we're diligently trying to, to live our lives in a way and to shape our lives in a way pleasing to God and then the devil comes and as if it were he pushes our elbow he makes a mess of our lives the sin in our, heart, in our hearts rises up from time to time and does the same with our elbow 
So we are faced every day with these two challenges, the sinfulness of our own hearts, the determination of the devil that Peter speaks of later on as uh, the adversary that's like a roaring lion. Every day we're trying to, to trace our lives around the, the pattern that Jesus has said. We are faced with the powerful sin in our hearts. And sometimes we, we think as we, as we will grow older in the Christian life and journey that our sins will be conquered. And we realize the more that we go on in the Christian life, the more our sins grow and they grow. They seem to grow from, go from strength to strength. They seem to be more powerful than ever. And that's the way we will face our challenges. Our sin will be there. The temptation will be there. And the more we advance in the faith, the more the, we will see the strength and power of that temptation. And when that is reinforced and, and driven home by the presence of the devil himself who will take all of the sins of our hearts, who will persuade us that we are not the children of God, who, are, who will persuade us that there is no point in trying to live for God, he will use our sin to destroy, to, to make a mess of the tracing paper so that our lives are nothing like what our lives should be. The challenges that we face in seeking to live as Christians in the workplace, in school, in our learning, in our community, the challenges are there. And we will know our failing and our failures. And our failures should not be a discouragement. Of course, they bring us to realize how sinful we are. But we go from strength to strength by knowing the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus and to live for him and to be for him good examples, to be clearly those who have been called from darkness into his marvelous light and those who therefore live like him, obedient to death, even death on a cross, that we will live the life of obedience for him, that he will be our pattern. Jose Mourinho, for those of you who follow football, he spoke of Metzit Utzel, who was, who was praying for him at Real Madrid, who retired from football this week, and he said about Metzit Utzel, he is unique, there is no copy of him, not even a bad copy. That's how unique he was. And so often we find ourselves with, with bad copies, with failures. And we learn that more and more every day. But let's remember the practice and let's remember the motivation. Let's remember the, the care and the grace of God that enables us day by day to rise up from the dust as it were and to continue to live with a newness and a, a refreshing transformation of a relationship with God and so be faithful to him in the workplace in our everyday lives. And in closing, thirdly and briefly, there is a, a perspective. There is a perspective where we 
Learn from him. He was reviled, did not revile and return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He was perfect. We don't expect that perfection, but we strive for it day by day, and we persevere because of this perspective. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It's all a matter of faith. Faith in the God who is judge. Why will we trust in the God who is judge? It is because he will judge justly. It is because that the day will come when however much we are wronged unjustly, the day will come when God will judge that. Judgment belongs to him. It's not ours to do so. We put our trust in him. And when we see Jesus, the one who, who suffered for us, the one who committed no sin, the one who continued entrusting himself, the picture is of handing over. And we have the marvellous image, I think. As you read the message of Jesus himself, he continually refers to, to the way in which he is delivered into the hands of sinful men in Matthew 17. In Matthew 26, the Son of Man is delivered up to be crucified. He is crucified by the chief priests and the, and the Pharisees. They are handing him over. They are delivering him up to be crucified. At the same time, Jesus is delivering himself up in obedience to the Father. And so we have the mystery of the way in which they were delivering him up was the pathway through which he delivered himself up to the Father. And we have the example of his perspective that the cup that his Father has given me, will I not drink it? Yes, arise from here, let us go. He that is going to betray me is at hand. There was that determination. He was delivering himself up to the Father as they were delivering up to be crucified. And that's your life and mine. We are giving ourselves over in our trust to God. The world around us in its enmity against the Christian faith may want to hand us over to to every power that is hostile to us in order to bring our faith to nothing. But as we remain faithful and loyal, the more we will hand ourselves over to the God who cares, to the God whom we serve, to the God who will reward us, and the God who will judge and correct all the wrongs at last. And today may may God help us to, to so live for him, to to have that practice daily in our lives, to rise up every morning motivated by the sense of God's reward, motivated by the sense that his presence is with us and motivated by the need to do what pleases him. And let's be inspired by the example that we have in Jesus himself. And when we are put off track and off trace, let's not be discouraged to turn our backs on our faith, but let's be 
encouraged to reach out to the God, Christ who suffered for us as we see from the closing verses of this chapter. Let us put our trust in him and continue to show whose we are and whom we are determined to serve as the people of God. May God bless his word to us. Let us pray. Most gracious God, we are thankful to you that you have not left us on our own in this world, that you have called us to follow you, called us to serve you, called us to suffer for you. Help us to do so with godly fear. Help us to live every day with your grace active in our hearts and our lives, with a sense of your communion and your presence with us, and give to us to be encouraged day by day by the example and pattern set by your Son, who suffered for us, and to follow that path of faithful obedience to you in every step that he took, and was obedient to death, even death on a cross. So hear our prayer and bless your word. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Closing psalm is psalm number 70. The Scottish Psalter, the first version of the psalm. Psalm number 70 on page 309. And we'll sing the whole of the psalm. Psalm 70, the first version. Lord, haste me to deliver. With speed, Lord, succor me. Let them that for my soul do seek, shamed and confounded be. The whole of the psalm to God's praise. Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen.